You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit Irreverent FM for more content from my friends. Hello, hello, and welcome to Bad Words, an ex-evangelical podcast where we give toxic theology the read that it deserves by taking another look at some of the books that have been given major influence in evangelical Christianity. I am Janice Legata, and this is a meeting of the Bad Book Club. We are reading The Bait of Satan by John Bevere, biting into it one chapter at a time. I'll read the opening paragraph and give a few thoughts, and then join one of the members of the Bad Book Club for a discussion. In the end, I'll read the closing paragraph and give some closing thoughts, all with the intention of leaving you free to think your own thoughts about the chapter, the book, and all things really. So, without further ado, let's get into... Chapter 4, My Father, My Father, My Father, dot dot dot. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. 1 Samuel 24.11 In the last chapter, we saw how Joseph's brothers sought to destroy him. We saw the pain he experienced from this betrayal. Perhaps you're in a similar situation. You've been betrayed by those closest to you, people from whom you wanted love and encouragement. In this chapter, I want to deal with a situation more painful than a betrayal by a brother. It is one thing to experience rejection and malice from a brother. It is entirely different to experience rejection and malice from a father. When I speak of fathers, I am not just referring to a biological father, but to any leader God puts over us. These are the people we thought would love, train, nurture, and care for us. So according to JB, chapter 3 was about brotherhood, and chapter 4 seems like it's going to be about fathers and sons, but is it? We'll see. But first, as you may have noticed, I hate the title of this book. I think it's stupid and absolutely nonsensical. But believe it or not, I had a listener who made it make sense this week. He dropped me an audio DM and I waited until the last minute to ask if I could add it to this episode. So wait for it. And I would drop it at the top of the next episode. And spoiler alert, yes, he does make sense of it. But it's still stupid to me. And like everything about John Bevere at this point, it's a bummer. It just makes me sad. So there's that. And knowing how badly John mangled the story of Joseph, I didn't have high hopes going into chapter four, and JB does not disappoint, and that he is as theologically awful and disappointing as I expected, above and beyond, in fact. There's a recurring game show sketch on SNL where the contestants are shown a picture, and they win by being the first to recognize what's wrong with it. And the gag is that the contestants can never recognize what is so obviously wrong, and I kind of want to play that game with this chapter. So as we go into it, I want you to keep in mind the opening paragraph that I just read and the fact that this chapter is entitled My Father, My Father, and see if you can point out a big thing that is very wrong with this picture. So keep that in mind and keep an audio lookout as we get into it with book club member number four, Elizabeth. Hi, I am Elizabeth Curette and I know Janice through our experience, mutual experience of Hillsong Church, Hillsong International Leadership College in Sydney, Australia, New South Wales. Let me be very specific. Not that it matters because they're like wanting to take over the world, which is not godly. But we met the, well, our summer as an American, the end of their winter, August of 2005, and we ended up being roommates. And I was thinking about this the other day. I was like, Shit, you were one of two roommates in my entire time there that I liked. And both of the roommates that I liked, including, and you were one of them, the other person was from Africa. I'm like, they're black people. Like, yes, just wonderful. This is wonderful. My community. 
you understand me. Y'all understand me. We understand each other. And they were other good girls, you know, whatever. But it's just community, community. I, I felt more understood. So, yeah, that's how we met. And uh, that's how we know each other. And she's doing amazing things. And I love seeing it because I support it. And her platforms uh, have been able to introduce me to freedom and critical thinking and healing because so many people had the same story. So, yeah, a little bit about me and how I know Janice. Oh, well, <laughs> I am happy to have you here. Thank you. As soon as I decided, yeah, I'm going to start this book club. I was like, I know who one of the people has to be. Oh, that means a lot. I love hearing your thoughts. I love how your storyline is progressing. As the last message, girl, we could talk about that offline, but this summer, hell yeah. So yeah, so we'll put a pin in that again for offline. But today, Bait of Satan, John Bevere. So let's talk about your history with this book. When did you first become aware of it? So pretty much I was aware of it towards my senior year in college. So really just months before I flew out to Sydney and I was, I had never read the book. I still haven't read the full book, but I was really obsessed and, and very familiar with John Bevere through a couple of his books. And one of them was Undercover, which a lot of this topic of, of offense is covered. I don't know in most of his books, but there was a period of time between 2004 and 2005 where he had a series of books and it wasn't itself a series, but just different publications where he would cross-reference offense. And one of them I was exposed to was Undercover. Mm-hmm. And literally that was the beginning of my mental health decline but it was back in 2004 2005 I had read his book undercover so this book I had heard about it and it's not that it didn't interest me in reading it I just felt like at that time what I needed to know about leadership because the seed was planted in my own church not from this book but just the thought of you know being submitted to to church leaders and and I read this book kind of on my own. And that was the beginning of me being familiar with John Revere and clearly the bait of Satan was, was one of those books. So, so how did you feel about the prospect of reading part of this book? So I definitely felt anxious and I did have some anxiety on Friday night. I couldn't sleep. So I started reading it and I, like I said, I couldn't sleep, but the primary part of my anxiety because I'm still kind of deconstructing everything um, right now, I feel like, you know, God is telling me, you know, you need a break from this mess. So just step away from the church. I feel like even have being able to be released from reading the word, just a detoxification. And I felt anxious because I was kind of crossing my finger, hoping that nothing was going to come up so thought provoking to the point that it would reel me back in because I'm not going to stand here and say that, Oh, I'm not vulnerable. I'm definitely very much vulnerable, but all I know is that I'm free now and I don't want anyone to mess with that. So that's, that's how I felt. I felt anxious because of those reasons. So in, in thinking about this book and even in my reactions, I think pretty much everyone's reactions that I've talked to so far 
there has been this anxiety. Like even me, oh, I did this to myself and I'm, you know, feeling this way. But trying to locate that feeling and I cannot think of any, any other sort of media that provokes these kind of feelings in me. It's only it's only Christian Christian things, right? That's something interesting to think about. Yes. Why these kind of books provoke this kind of anxiety? Mm-hmm. Because these books give themselves so much weight, you know, and they're supposed to be so important. Mm-hmm. And so they are like, yeah, triggering to have to think about, you know. Yeah. And then that idea too of kind of because we were so primed for this stuff. Mm. Like, am I going to get reeled back in? Am I going to see something in here that's going to be like, oh, maybe this is right? Mm. <laughs> yes, that's it. Yeah. Oh. But <laughs> thankfully, there's nothing in this book that <laughs> is in any way attractive. Or for me, if it, the only times when I'm like, wait a minute, maybe I need to go look into the Bible again, is to be like, no, because this is wrong. I definitely did a little bit of a hermeneutical studies with this on his book and look like, you know, and we'll get to it, but I think that there was one concept that I was like, I'm not, first of all, I'm not going to give John Bevere the um, um, accolade or the recognition because, you know, I will say because I, 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 I believe in God, I, I'm still, I believe there's a supreme being. I kind of want to start calling him the divine. I'm noticing that people that are deconstructing, they call him, him that. And, and I feel like that's purposeful. And I, it's not to follow a crowd. It's more like a way of disassociating all of the, the um, oppression and kind of introducing the reality of who the, this person is, this individual is. And it could be a woman, it could be, you know, I, I don't think there's a man, but it just, you know, just all of that, right? So I give God this concept of there is a way to live life with humility and that the universe, the divine God, the universal force energy, it, it will actually defend you and it will actually bring justice forward so john bevere highlights that again i'm not giving him credit for that because that doesn't belong to him and i think that that's a cause of the forces of the universe working out for our good that's about it that's a basic human who you know anybody with human decency would kind of use emotional intelligence you know, to, to kind of use that tool of humility in certain scenarios, but that's about it. That, that was about it. So it's, it's been super interesting to me. Cause I mean, these chapters were kind of randomly assigned based on, you know, who was available when, okay. so it's been really, really interesting. how like these chapters have been kind of assigned correctly. Mm. So even here now, you know, that the book you read was undercover and mm-hmm. you know, it's that whole idea of authority. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> this chapter oh wow see and i ha- since i haven't read the whole book i just i don't know something within me it's like oh the whole book is about this but yeah no um yeah well first of all are you okay because you had to read the whole book are you okay sister are you good i'm are fine you- because okay. i think i think i think the first two chapters were hard because just getting into it and getting into that mindset but then 
honestly, every every chapter is its own kind of word soup. So it none of it none of it really connects. I mean, it's all on you know his theme of whatever. But all these stories he's taking, they're all yeah, I'll say twisted, twisted to fit you know yeah, his perspective. Sure. It's like a beard that does not connect. It's there, but it's it's doing its and own they thing. They never connect. <laughs> There's just some men that can't, you know, just so so I'm fine. Like it's okay. It's it's funny to me at this point. I I, I didn't grow up using a lot of or being taught to use critical thinking skills because my father was in the military and so the whole idea of submission and leadership it was pivotal. Um which was the, the thing why I embraced it and didn't rebel against it is because I saw that my dad who was a soldier could fall under authority, but then he, I hate to say this, I'm not bashing my father. He's, he's great. But one of the glitches in his character is that he's not very good at receiving correction. So he did it as his job, but when it comes to other people, to his equal, or even his daughters challenging him, it's always been hard for him to do that. And that's been a huge part of our conflict. But I have to say that a huge portion of this is because he's he has PTSD and it's exacerbated. So it's all coming out now. But anyways, but yeah, like so I embraced authority. I embraced authority because I saw him not being able to do it with peers, with his wife. And because there weren't issues at the time, but, you know, as we've grown, my sisters and I have grown into adults and we were challenging him and he would just push back and it's not misogyny because otherwise I would have been, I hate to say this because of Latino culture married with a whole bunch of kids. He's always supported me to do my own thing. He supported my sisters to do our own thing, but I embraced it again because I didn't see that he really couldn't be challenged face-to-face. I think that if another man would have challenged him face-to-face outside of the context of being a soldier, like he just wouldn't receive it. He would get upset. So I was like, I don't want to grow up that way. I want to be teachable. And and that's why I felt like Undercover and John Bevere's ministry at the time was really pivotal, especially going into Hillsong. I wanted to make sure that I, when someone would be challenging me, I wouldn't react like my dad, which is so funny because the church that I was going to that I had left to go then to Hillsong was so wonderful. I was already submitting. It was already a, a, you know, a flow. And, and I know we can argue like, Oh, is that even healthy now that we've received our own revelation? Like that's fine. But there was a a mutual community, even from the leadership and there was mutual respect and honor and receptiveness so it, it just all flowed really, really well, which is literally my only good concept of church and community was that one church. So, so what chapter did you have and what was it about? I had chapter four, my father, my father, and pretty much, <clears throat> excuse me, the chapter was really about, you know, John really talks about experiencing rejects, rejection and malice, you know, from a father figure, right? And how even though there are situations where father figures or leadership, male or female, can hurt you, um, he wants to use a lot the word reject 
and it's a dan- it's a dangerous thing and we'll get to this but i think we the reader can easily clump that to being a lot of other things that it's not mm-hmm. but the the general premise really is about the chapter indicating how even if it's from a leadership standpoint you need to make sure that you're not offended in your heart and I think that we can all acknowledge that there's a lot of people that go around being very combative. Like that's even in church (laughs) circles, even at work, even family members, they just look for being combative and being bringing strife and discord and all of those issues forward. So what's dangerous is that we don't isolate those types of people that need therapy, but that the reader is someone who's looking to potentially, and the reader who starts and finishes the book, that's the key, is someone who's looking to be better. And that is someone that you will be able to evaluate that I want to be better. And I, I kind of, with Undercover, I was like, in a lot of other books, I was like, I want to make sure that there's nothing hidden in my heart where could be holding me back from God's blessing. And that's a a lie to a certain extent, right? So I think that we're all in an evolution. We're all walking together. And I think that if we're willing, like we'll naturally change and grow and be better because we're willing and we're looking to those things. But here, this chapter just puts puts a, a, a fear in your heart as a reader, because if you're, even if you are a person who's trying to be better, like I said before, you're clumping rejection into and to other, other, there's just other things that he mentions here, and it's dangerous. He, he blurs the line of rejection, of offense, of anger, of hatred. Like, he just blurs it all together, and that's dangerous. So the chapter really goes through the scriptures, particularly David, and we know that Saul goes after him because Saul was just jealous, and not just jealous— we see, and um, I believe it was Second Samuel chapter fifteen. You know, we see that Saul is loses his opportunity to be king, and we see that you know, pretty much not Second Samuel. I'm sorry, First Samuel. First Samuel. He ends up losing his position. But what's interesting is that John kind of isolates in the beginning of the chapter sorry, at the beginning, 1 Samuel chapter 16 through 20, through 31, excuse me. But Mm -hmm. you need to go back to read chapter 15 because you see that, anyways, we'll get to it because I'm getting so excited. Like there's more context that John leaves out. So anyways. You're right on track (laughs) because what's the next question? What did you think of it in in general and its use of the Bible? I mean, just kind of to elaborate that, that portion, you know, you have... First of all, he starts off with using 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 to 26. And there, you, you know, we have to look at the purpose of Timothy, right? So 2 Timothy, Paul is in prison. He's getting ready to die. He knows this. He's passing on the baton to Timothy regarding the church of Ephesus. So the book of Timothy 1 and 2 is really talking about Timothy's behavior and positioning as a leader and he literally is talking to him as a young minister he's giving those final accounts regarding the status like hey this is where the church is at i'm about to die 
So he's addressing Timothy's behavior and how to manage different types of people. And one of the things that John Bevere does by isolating 2 Timothy 2 to 24 to 26, I don't want people to read this, so let me just kind of read it. He said, you know, as a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, you need, don't quarrel, you need to be gentle, you need to teach, you need to be patient, you need to be humble, even correcting those who are in, in opposition. And people are like, oh, but aren't y'all in opposition? We're going to get to that, trust me. So if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may uh, come to the senses and escape the snare of the devil, blah, blah, blah. So John arbitrarily here decides that by using 2 Timothy scripture that the offended person is the opponent. And the offended person is automatically quarrelsome, automatically brings foolish and stupid arguments. You know, John here pretty much decides that any correction or challenge is a problem. So he, he sets almost that foundation that the offended, because he starts to chapter off with Luke 17, 1, he starts by giving the definition of offense by using Luke 17, 1. He connects seven, Luke 17, 1 as the people who are offended are the our opponents and they only bring quarrel and foolishness and stupid arguments. And if you think about it, like I said, any kind of form of correction that any, any, my, anyone might bring is going to be a problem, according to John Bevere. And pretty much this epitomizes the Western American church right here. I love that idea of, the, of yeah, who, who is an opponent. And just, I think he kind of sets it up that whoever is first in. So, you know, I've said this. I said it first. So anyone who disagrees with me, you are now in opposition to That me. is huge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like, just because you said it first, doesn't mean you're right. Correct. And if, if you're going to use the word opposition, then opponent implies that you would hope is two equal parties. Mm -hmm. That like, Ooh. it's not Mike Tyson and his opponent is a five-year-old child or right. a puppy. You're hoping Mike Tyson is going up against and someone of equal value and strength. And yeah. Right. Correct. Right. And it's, so it should be an equal exchange. Exactly. So there should be, there should be equality here. Right. Because if it's not, if we're not, equal, we're not equal, then I'm not your opponent. Right. I'm probably your abuser. Like if I'm wielding strength that you do not have, yeah. that, that's abuse. Yeah. And, you know, he, I mean, I don't want to dissect every part of it, but one of the interesting thing is that a lot of these Christian authors will start off with a testimony and he does start off with a testimony, which Sadly enough, is by someone from Indiana, which unfortunately I live here. And Indiana is a place that I completely abhor. Why are you still here, Elizabeth? Because my family's here and my parents are elderly. And because of my dad's PTSD, it's hard for him to cooperate with anything. So we're kind of stuck here. But he talks about how a, a, a teacher brought in the bait of Satan into the classroom to kind of share and how, oh my God, the Holy Spirit was felt and children were, were, you know, it says several children, this was the best day they had all year. And, and everyone began to confess their offenses and ask for forgiveness. This whole starting off with a testimony about a teacher bringing in this book to children. This is one thing we have to pause and gasp. A teacher 
bringing this to children when children are still growing, developing, and even when children are misbehaving. That's part of the process. Children are, you know, I'm not saying children are going to be children, like, you know, let's not go there. but children are still evolving. And one of the things that really frightened me was the fact that with this, you don't have, it's, it's being celebrated. John clearly puts it here at the beginning of this chapter four, but there's no context to the things that these children are being affected with, no, or exposed to the, it could, there could be um, things like sexual misconduct, abuse, neglect, mental, financial, you know, all of these things are not being taken into consideration. And I was like, wow. And it's really, really sad that he actually thinks this testimony and the author, Bevere, thinks that this testimony is a form of ministry. Yeah. Anybody nowadays can say a testimony about a circumstance and not give full context. And I know that was back in, what was it? By the way, John Bevere, I did a little research and he has, ooh, he has actually come out with different versions of this book. And this book actually ended up, let me see here. The first title to this book had a very disturbing, a little bit, uh, a little bit of a disturbing uh, first title, and more disturbing than the beta thing. Well, I really believe like it can be more disturbing when you have to add to it. Oh. So the first book was printed in 1994, and that title was "The Beta Satan: Your Response Determines Your Future," and then. There was a 10th anniversary in 2004, and let me see here, and it's it's called Living Free from the Deadly Trap of Offense. And apparently the original preface was replaced by one written by John himself. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is that the earlier printed version had the preface and the foreword of a really famous minister, ben- Benny Hinn. Mm-hmm. And then it's oh, interesting... Yeah. <laughs> that the fact that you change the title and I don't know if this is like a a publishing rule you have to change the title in order to change maybe the original foreword or prefaces things like that so I don't know but you know it it was removed and that that was really really interesting but it is disturbing because you have to think like when your original intent it has to be revised you know to make it more maybe more palatable a little more, a little more mainstream, a little more mainstream, a little more Hillsong platform, more Hillsong platform. You know, that's where, um, levels and layers of deception can kind of be folded in. So yeah, that was just a little thing that I found really interesting. So what were some things that, that stood out to you in chapter four? Good, good or bad. So let me see. I I have notes. (laughs) The, I think the fact that he he starts off, like I said, with Luke chapter 17, and he he groups that with 2 Timothy 2.24. So he's, again, picking and choosing, which a lot of evangelicals swear that they're not doing, and they even preach on context, but they do it. And so, you know, one of the things that if you go down and you read... And I'm so sorry. Let me go back because the beginning of chapter four, um, you know, jumps into talking about talking about the story of of Samuel. 
But, you know, when you when you're reading the book and the beginning of the book, John defines offense, you know, like we previously talked about, he says this one thing that says there's two types of people. There's two types of, of offended people, one who have been treated unjustly and those who believe they have been believe that they've been treated unjustly. And he says that either way they hurt and their understand their understanding is darkened. They judge by assumption and appearance and hearsay. So even if you have received abuse, you are still judging by hearsay. You are not actually recollecting the actions and the events that have happened to you. And you do not have the authority, the premise, the, the, the support to even classify that as abuse, it's offense and you really need to get it out of your heart. And there's other chapters in the book. And I believe it's in chapter world, I 12, excuse me. I didn't read it, but he, he addresses this when someone comes to, to John's um, counsel and a woman who has been left by her husband for a younger woman in the church and he leaves her and she's, excuse me, she's upset and she's hurt and she feels like she can't move on. And John literally tells her the reason why she can't move on is because she has unforgiveness in her heart and she has offense in her heart. And I was like, wow. And so, so anyways, the book starts that way, but then chapter four, he starts off with another scripture from first chapter 24. And one of the first thoughts that I said is, does offense automatically equal unforgiveness? And I think that that's one of the things that they, you know, it's lumped in together. And in that first paragraph, you know, first two paragraphs he writes. And I, and I kind of was thinking, you know, I already know John Revere is kind of here. He's setting up the reader to accept any form of abuse. You know, we have to remind ourselves that David had a personal conviction that he wasn't going to be the one to murder Saul. And David was in turmoil when it came to him fleeing from Saul. You know, it wasn't in his character to actually self-position himself, to self-aggrandize himself as the king, even though he was already anointed. And so, you know, we have to think about offense does not equal vengeance. Correction does not equal offense or vengeance. You know, and 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 this book can easily, this chapter can easily actually have the reader who finishes the book group all of those things together. So if I have offense, I must hate this person. If I have offense, I must want vengeance. If I correct someone, then I have offense. And and it's it's none of those things. You I, I believe that you could potentially, we can discuss this further. We can you can potentially have one of those things be single entities in itself. So he then dives into first Samuel, like I said, first Samuel chapter 16 through 30, 31st, he leaves out chapter 15 and Saul, he talks about Saul's turmoil was because he disobeyed God. Really. If you look at first Samuel chapter 15, Saul was not tormented by his disobedience. He was pissed because he wasn't going to be King and in charge anymore. And it says it in verse 30. Then he said, he's talking to Samuel. I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. The key thing is that 
he still wanted to be honored. He was upset that he wasn't going to be king. It wasn't, it had nothing to do with disobedience. And so that's one thing that I kind of realized and that John kind of misses clearly by not including that in his, uh, you know, coupled scriptures. He goes on to talk about, about David, the whole story. You know, he puts words into David's head that are very Americanized, that are very Western. We can't assume that David, you know, once he slays Goliath and gets Saul's daughter, you know, to be wife, and he's now living in the, you know, in in the palace or whatever, that after Saul runs him out and away and, and David officially starts fleeing, that he's thinking about his wife, that he's thinking about all the comforts. David was a shepherd boy and was always out in the field. So we're, we're, we're bringing in concepts of Western society into this non-Western story. And so John actually puts thoughts in your head that are, are just not there. You know, I'm thinking as well, you know, there are some things that I kind of highlighted that, let me see here. I had, again, I had to write notes. So John is kind of listing, he's kind of coupling everything, you know, offense with being hurt. And David is, is hurt. If he sees Saul as a mentor, as a father figure, you know, there is possibility that you can be rejected and just simply be hurt and not offended. You know, you know, can, and, and I ask myself, can we not hurt like David? You know, in those days, what's customary is that you're, you know, from the perspective of who David is, like, he's not going to rise up and just kill the king, right? He's going to, perception could be everything. And if he's going to inherit a kingdom, he's not going to, he's not going to want to inherit an already divided kingdom and divided each more, you know, even more when there's people that could love Saul. So I say all that because again, going back to coupling, you know, offense with just, and mixing it up with just simply being hurt. Yeah. And, and we can go from there. (laughs) There's just a lot of thoughts. (laughs) Sorry. I love that. And that's so good. Like one of my, one of my many issues with this book is that he, he uses the word offense for everything. We're glossing over a whole bunch of other, other feelings, other emotions. Like I wish if I had the time, like I would go through the book and just write in another word everywhere he puts offense because not everything is offense. Mm -hmm. And even when it is, I honestly feel bad for John Bevere because I'm like, your your worldview is so dark. Just this idea that as soon as I'm offended, I want vengeance. I want to murder. I want to take. And I'm like, most of the time when you're hurt, all you really want is for it to stop. You know, even you talking about David, yeah, it could be that, yeah, I, I was in this place and I liked this dude and he liked me and now I'm hurt. And if anything... Man, like John is acting like, you know, we've all been anointed to do something, right? Especially when we were in that that worldview. You've been prophesied, the prophet told you whatever, you had a feeling about whatever. It is rare that we are like confident in those things. So it could be very possible that David, yeah, okay, I've been anointed, but this dude is still here. I'm not going to kill him. I might just want to go home to just go back to my old life, go back to my family right. and just be a shepherd. You live out your days and do whatever. Right. But it's like, no, like this target has been put on his back because of this anointing, right? And because Saul has been told he's lost his position. Mm-hmm. So now he has to run. I just don't think we don't walk around with all this malice. Mm-hmm. No. And all this, you did something to me and now I want to get you. 
like most of the time we're like, I just wanted to stop and I just want to be able to go about my life right. the way it was. Exactly. And and the thing is, if you if you think about it, the the reader is being like you said, it's put, being put in the position of we need to behave like like David, and and like you said, we most of the time we just want to be out of that scenario, but then then let's go ahead and centralize Saul. Saul is and and I guess to John's point, Saul is the one who's the actual one who's offended, you know, and jealous. And if you look at that, offense is more coupled with you know things like jealousy and rage and you know it it it's actually very opposite to david's character so why would david all of a sudden want to do something out of his character so he wasn't even going to do that and john uses thoughts in this chapter to make you think that like for example he'll he'll say like you know oh you know he's in in one of the caves fleeing from Saul and then he doesn't say it like this but it's like oh my wife and and the food that I was eating and then you know he I was like that's not going to be the way David a middle eastern ancient man non-western going to he's not going to be thinking about that and another thing he's not going to be thinking about is how John uses the whole idea of David slaying Goliath as a form of getting into his position as king. And he says that. He says that because he he literally says, and let me find it. He literally ends up saying, uh, David must have thought God is already bringing to pass his promise through the prophet. Surely I will win the favor of the king. This must be my entry-level position. Entry-level position. Classic Middle Eastern ancient. Yeah, that's so typical in Middle Eastern, not, you know? It's like, that's very American. That's very centralized thinking, very arrogant, very self-entitled. That's, that, that's not what David most likely would have been thinking. David had an intimacy with the Lord and he saw that the, you know, the fear and the, the I guess the shamefulness or the drawback of the army of the Lord is not stepping up into the position of who they were. And he's, he's like, you guys, this is a Philistine. Like, this is, this is a Gentile, you know? And, and I know we can talk all about that, but, you know, given context and cultural and time, you know, he's not dissing Gentiles, but in that context, he's like, you know, they're attacking my people. Like, we know who we are. Like, why is he, why is he letting us, why are we being dissed and being kind of, you know, why are we shrinking back? Because he knew his relationship with God. It had nothing to do with position. It had nothing to do with coming into his place of being king. And John actually blurs that. Right. So in the beginning, you as a woman of the people, you talked about, oh, this book talks about leadership, male or female. But Elizabeth, where where are women? Oh, in nowhere. Nowhere, of course. Which that's part of my deconstruction is the entire is most of this book the bible still pains me to say this is can this still be reliable in context and interpretation i mean if you look at the king james and i haven't looked at it at, at this thought is that the reason of how the king james book was pulled together was 
so elementary and so it was ridiculous. It was not because of anointing at all. So I really have to take a lot of things with a grain of salt. Yeah. So even, I mean, his whole premise for this chapter, like he starts out in this chapter, I want to deal with the situation more painful than a betrayal by a brother. It is one thing to experience rejection and malice from a brother, but it is entirely different to experience rejection and malice from a father. Mm. So he comes in trying to talk about these close connections. It's one thing for a brother, not a sister, a brother. Mm. Oh, it's even worse for a father. But then he turns right around. I'm not just referring to a biological father, but to any leader God puts over us. So you've gone from close connection, brother, I guess, I guess you could put friend in there, but I won't even do that. Cause you're, you're saying brother, you're trying to bring it into the family. Worse than that is a father. Okay. We're still in the family, but then you, you extrapolated right out to now any leader, any leader. is as close as a father, which is worse than a brother. And it's like, but couldn't your leader be your brother? Couldn't your leader be right? So it's like you're putting, you're automatically putting this overemphasis on a leader, like making them that primary figure, this important person. Yeah. And then he never, where is it? They cry out, they cry out for a father, a man to disciple, love, support, and encourage them. So he leans hard into this is very male. This leadership is is extremely male. Our nation lost its father. Oh, I I stopped there because I literally was thinking about how the fact that he's telling that story because he goes into the he starts saying in the forties and the fifties. You know, and I and I really think that he's really arrogant. Um, he's very ignorant, rather, to make that statement because it it just first of all wasn't the forties and fifties uh, regarding absentee fathers, and and the problem is that the collective like news of missing fathers really has to do more with the awareness through technology. But here it stood out to me. I'm like, hmm, really during the 40s and 50s, what we do see and what isn't being told is women being empowered, empowering themselves because they're the ones that are, you know, sometimes leaving the home. And it's because of abuse and misogynistic men. And, and he, he, he clearly misses all of that and misses the actual historical events that take place you have women walking away from sometimes their families and from and not their maybe families but mainly their marriages because previous to the 40s and and 50s they held this country together and working and sustaining it through you know they they kept it afloat while all the men were were fighting so he centralizes the male as just just in everything in this chapter and that leadership and there is no equality there is no no it's not realistic that you go throughout life that everyone is your authority that everyone is your leader and even maybe by title in a job position you and one of the things that i'm learning you know through my 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 classes that you as a communicator you need to be able to challenge and advise through effective leadership you know, and not be a yes man when it comes to certain crisis communication, certain crisis management behaviors. Like you, 
it's such an ethereal and fluid concept when it comes to leader, but it, leadership and, and John makes it a hard fact. And then he personifies it, what it, it is to be. It's, it's, a, it's a male. It, why can it not be a, a woman? Why can it like you, your point, why can it not be a sister? You know, and it's not about feminism is the fact that everything is about authority and everything with John Bevere is about authority and which is ridiculous. So. Yeah. I'll just, just, add to that to say this book just does not take it doesn't take historical context at any point no. into into thought like it just doesn't there's no proper context for anything not the bible stories because mm -hmm. he's bringing this very white very western very empowered male perspective to these characters yeah. not even the things that he'll mention like you said the 1940s and 50s you know versus today our condition is getting worse right. And just, yeah, that idea, I'm like, are you? Because, yes, this has been, you know, an accusation labeled at the at the Black community, again, without context all the time. Right. Uh, they don't have fathers. And then you're going to pull that right. in. So, John, are you now are you now admitting to something in the white community? Right, and we know that in the Black community during that time, like the entire time of the existence of this country, we understand that Black people have received the harshest of treatment and the wealth and the existing like everything we experience and see is based off of the the fact that black people built this country and was they were capitalized on so when you i say all that because when you look at the context that he just briefly mentions here and and okay so there could have been you know black male fathers absent but what's the context of what was going on during that time you know they were being police they were being chased they were being left without you know jobs and and he makes it seems like being fatherless is all it's not systemic right. you know and yeah so it, it's just he leaves like you said he leaves a lot of cultural context out of it, a lot of American historical context out of it, just setting it up so that the reader can just take it all in, clump it all in as the sole reason why anybody could be offended. Yeah. And that there is a reason to challenge leadership. So. Right. And then it's so, so weird to me because he gets, he gets so close and there are a few paragraphs here where I'm like, you are saying the right thing, but it's in the backwards context. He says, you know, not unlike Saul, many leaders in our homes, corporations, and churches are more concerned with their goals than with their offspring. And, you know, because of this attitude, these leaders view God's people as resources to serve their vision instead of seeing the vision as the vehicle to serve the people. And he has, like, two solid paragraphs. Gets it right. Yes. And then he, and then he immediately, immediately, yes. Just flips it again to where it is on you. Right for being offended about being that vehicle that leader is using to serve his vision. Yeah. And I'm like, my dude, how? He's how? gaslighting. Like he's, he's literally gaslighting because he's placing the responsibility on the reader who, like I said, probably are congregants and they're not leaders reading this book, you know? And he is saying, you know, you're going to end up compromising based on money numbers and results if you're offended. And that is not the regular reader of this book. And, and again, the regular reader of this book, who finishes the book is someone who's wanting to be better and wanting to extract any kind of form of, like I used to think, like any kind of form of quote unquote evil that can keep me from the blessings of God. 
And he he goes to this extremity where if you're offended, then you're really someone who is compromising and you are really into these superficial things, which is so funny because these authors are, I'm not going to cuss, crazy rich and wealthy. And if you don't sell your books, if you don't get people to your speaking engagements, you are about numbers. You are about those things. And I guess... You know, we can talk about the fact that if you have those things, you got to make sure that you stay in a place of of not being offended when, you know, things go awry, whether or not he's actually addressing this. He's just kind of all over the place. He's so close. And then he pulls back because he uses things out of context and he's not looking at the entire picture. And he's, again, putting the blame on the average reader and making connections that are just not realistically there. That aren't there. And so then, so he talks about, talks about Dave and Saul. And then he goes, at this point in the book, this is the most detail we have gotten about something John Bevere may have gone through. Right. Still very vague, but we get a little a little story of him being done wrong yeah. and having this leader, yeah. you know, be against him. Again, this is from his perspective, so who knows? But I don't even I don't even care about his his story. And there's a huge what, disconnect. That's why I think that I'm not I really think that there's a part of the story that he uses almost to, to create a little bit of suspense, but it's not even, if you're really a leader to, especially if you're a senior leader in, in a church or a ministry organization, and your sole purpose is to make sure that your members are reconciling, your leadership staff is reconciling the way his senior leadership, which we can't put it past him, his senior pastor could have been just as twisted as John and not have done the right thing. But the fact that I, I definitely want to point out that the fact that in his own story, the gentleman who's causing all the chaos, it says that he put distance between the senior leadership and him and John himself and other pastors. I really highly doubt that because you are a pastor and you need to be in touch with your leadership and maybe not physical distance. That's not what I'm saying, but the fact that you're not just going to outright bring these two gentlemen together. And then he puts a responsibility on John to make, go make it right. When John continues to be employed after fearing that he's going to be fired and the senior leadership tells him that he needs to go make it right with this gentleman causing the issues that wasn't handled. Right. That that's not even something that is that Paul addresses in the scriptures, but that's how you handle it. So that's why right. I kind of can't help. Could John have just kind of created the suspense for the reader? And really that's not exactly we, and we don't know, we can't put that responsibility there, but I just, sometimes that for creative purposes, they, they can create suspense and just have this beautiful resolution where you're like, okay, this is how I need to walk. Cause look how beautiful it was wrapped up in a bow. And it's not, that's not real life. I did that Janice. I actually did that. And when I was in my undergrad and I was offended and angry, I was really frustrated with my roommates. They were dirty. They were disgusting. You know, that's my thing. <laughs> Janice, you remember that was my thing because of the, was it? the uh subsequent roommates i had after you <laughs> i'm sorry <It's, laughs> i guess i'm still offended about that uh, <laughs> oh my god um so sitting over there wishing death to all of them i know you are i know you are 
Well, look, caveat. Whenever you're going through hunger and one of your roommates doesn't give you food because you don't have money to contribute, there's something fucking wrong with that. So, but we'll leave that there. So, you know, the fact that I had horror, like there were these really dirty ass, and it wasn't even that. It wasn't even about that. I remember it was the fact that these two girls that were Christians were really ganging up on me and controlling me and everything I did was wrong. Almost kind of like the same thing that happened to me in Hillsong. Well, I just made that connection. God was warning me, Um, you know, and I literally went to one of the roommates who was just trying to be, she was really possessive, very controlling. And I said to her, like, you know, I apologize to her. Like John did this in the scenario. I had this and this in my heart because of the way you've been treating me. I want you to forgive me. And she literally from there just acted like a total B. Like she was just impossible to live with. And from there we, we all had to live separately. And you know, I was trying to do the right thing and it just didn't pan out. And I think that's also what's deceptive about this chapter and this book in general, because I understand that you can be following God or you could just be doing the right thing and it doesn't work out, but it's not a formula that you can apply to everything. And what I mean, this whole concept of going to someone who is creating chaos in your life going to them to apologize for them for, for the natural feelings and reactions they're causing in you. You know, I I think that's a little ridiculous. Yeah. I just think that that's just really kind of silly. So it is. And I think taken, taken to the level where John Bevere was at, Mm. I think it's It's dangerous. dangerous. Yes, it is dangerous. (laughs) He basically says, you know, cutting to the chase. He was right. He was right about everything about this man. Right. Right. But he he couldn't be the one to bring whatever this man was doing to the attention of leadership. It had to happen some other way. So he says, you know, my my information was accurate, but my motives were impure. So it's like the information is right, but because my motive, I can't say it. Okay, but fine. So then he goes. So basically, he him and this guy they become buddies, and then this guy gets gets outed later. And it's a six months later, I was ministering out of the country. All the wrong this man had done was exposed to the senior pastor. It had nothing to do with me, but with other areas of the ministry. What he was doing was much worse than what I knew. He was fired immediately. And so I wrote like, this is what happens when you only care about yourself. Because who knows what other things this man was doing to the congregation, to the, to the people there. And I was just like, wow. And if you think about it, this man was technically potentially a peer or a subordinate. So it wasn't even someone of authority. So why would you think that you couldn't even bring to the attention of the senior leadership this situation? Accurate information. Accurate information, that's all you're doing. And and I literally, because that situation right there that you just pointed out is in several of his other books, if not most, was the reason... I felt like I couldn't defend myself at Hillsong. That the reason why I couldn't, even when I tried, because I was I was getting to the end of my rope, but it didn't help that they gaslit me. But I I literally was so confused because it was all about the motives of my heart. From then on, the motives of my heart, the motives of my heart, the motives of my heart supersede any kind of accountability that could have not only been brought to light because of what, how it was doing to me, but the fact that it could have been affecting other people. 
And it stopped me. It stopped me because of the mo- quote unquote, the motive of my heart. And that's not healthy. It's not healthy. And it's not, it's not even it's realistic not. because if you, if you are abusing somebody, especially if it's somebody I know and I love, right. my heart should be upset right. about that. And it doesn't, it doesn't even, it doesn't matter. Even if I want to kill you in that moment, I don't. Mm-hmm. If I'm like reporting you to the authorities, the motive of my heart is already, it's already better than it yeah. could be. Right. And it, we're never going to, if you can get to the place where you were so cold, you were so impartial that you were just reporting things with no care for oh, anyone and, else. And wait a minute, pause there. Who do that? Who, who are the people who normally do that? If you think about it, who are the people that see a black man watching a bird and calls the fucking police? Sorry, excuse me. You're going to have to bleep that out. Like, right. Who are so unconcerned with people's humanity. Unconcerned with people's humanity. That they just see, that they just see They just could see, oh my God. Wow. Yeah, you don't even see me as a person. Like you are offended that I, as the non-entity, offense, right? And my their perception of that offense is more important than my yep. existence as, as a yep. person. As a, yep, correct. And so then, I mean, this chapter explains a lot about just a lot of what we're seeing, even at Hillsong right now. It's like I don't know, I don't know who any of these people are for or against because they're all playing these games behind the scenes, right? And so it's, okay, Ryan, Brian will fire Carl and Laura, but then Donna Crouch will be reaching out to Laura Lentz, you know, like, hey, we still love you, and That whatever. is tactics of a, a sociopath. You know, when John, he gets to this point where this man is apparently doing awful things, like he's doing something worthy of firing. But when I saw him at the airport, I was so happy to see him. I ran over and hugged him. So you have become friends with the enemy. Like you are now, you feel more for this person who is doing bad things than for the people under your leadership who you are paid to care about. You care more about your peer, your buddy. You know what made me think when I read it? Made me think how so many, and and people who have even I've seen have reached out to be like, oh, let me pray for you, friend. Let me, you know, just that passive aggressive shit. I saw it here and a lot of church people do that. And it's not genuine love because unless John Bevere exaggerated running to someone who has done so wrong to a church is not a healthy thing. And it doesn't mean you're offended and it doesn't mean that you hate them using emotional intelligence. I don't know where they're at, but if you dealt it within your heart, why do you have to do that? Why do you have to run to someone to do that? And I classify that as self-righteousness. I classify that as self-righteousness because I'm like, oh, and a lot of church people do this. Oh, I'm, I'm, I know that you effed up. You got kicked out. I knew about it. I was right. Even though God handled it, let me go run over to you and hug you and rub it in your face that I'm better than you. And that is what church people do. That is not love. And I can see through that. And people who can probably argue what I'm with what I'm saying, the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals those things to me. Yeah. And then every 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 chapter so far, every last mm. sentence is a doozy. So this one ends with, will you be a man or woman? So women, we finally get to, they finally appear. <laughs> oh, 
Will you be a man or woman after the heart of God, or will you seek to avenge? Wow, yourself? he he just mushes everything together. It just sets up this false dichotomy, yeah. like you can only be one yeah. right. or the other, and it's not at all. It, it's not. It, it's not at all. One of the things that the church nowadays completely disregards, because if you think about it, stand back and look at the scripture that he used. He used something in the Old Testament, not to discount the Old Testament, but it's a different type. And I'm going to use a really churchy word, and I still believe in it, dispensation. This is a different dispensation. The Old Testament is a different dispensation. And God was dealing with people in that dispensation. When Christ came, it changed. Oh, but God doesn't change. Of course he doesn't change, but he's so expanse that you can't just, you can't contain him in, in a book. You can't contain him in a book. So if you look at Jesus, he was flipping tables. He was calling Pharisees and government officials. Y'all dead. Y'all ain't shit. Y'all this, y'all that. Calling people out. And I'm like, my Jesus is gangster. Like, y- you know, like that's my God. That is the God that I worship because I'm just like, he wasn't taking shit. Yeah. He wasn't taking shit. And, and people want to use that concept of David and Saul in such a volatile time in that dispensation that even just comprehensively, it doesn't fit, doesn't fit John's point. Not that that's ever stopped him from saying or doing and anything. the mother ever has like millions i'm like what the hell i guess as he should because in the preface of his book john says the book you hold is quite possibly the most important confrontation with truth you'll encounter in your lifetime and then towards the end of it this book is not a theory it is god's word made flesh but let's pause and freaking talk about the level of arrogance self-entitlement that he literally has here. So I literally say this to that statement. For me, it screams arrogance and he's putting fear. And what's really frightening is that he's actually putting his own interpretation of the Bible stories and lessons higher than what it, it, it stands alone. And honestly, the danger of a lot of these Christian books is that they actually believe that God needs help in interpreting the word of God. And, you know, they call this teaching, right? But the way this book is written, just along with a whole bunch of others, is it's manipulative. It centralizes the author and not God. And it, it, I can't help to kind of make me, it, this, this is what reminds me. And I know that God was with me as I was dissecting this because all these scriptures started popping up. And then to, to conclude, this is what God showed me. I'm, I'm, look, I remembered when, if anyone can remember when Uzziah, so they were transporting, David was transporting the Ark of the Covenant from where it was to Jerusalem. And it was a rackety old, you know, cart with oxen. It wasn't in the proper form and fashion as it was established by God. So it's kind of on this car getting ready to tumble and Uzziah reaches out to hold it up, right? Really good intentions. And God was like, Nope, you're dead. And we can argue that whole thing. Like, Oh, if God is a good God. Okay. That's fine. Okay. But God does not need help. God does not need help with his word. 
And people can use Ephesians 6 to be like, oh, but you know, God gave different ministries to different people and teachers and pastors and prophets. I understand that, but the way it's being used is incorrect. God doesn't need these books to add. And if ministers were really out there pointing people to God, to Jesus, they wouldn't need to, to write these conceptual books that manipulates the scripture. God doesn't need any help. But what we but what they can do is continue to point them to God and to to what is true and what is good. Hello, like, you know, using what we know that is true and good to point people to God so that they can hear God for themselves. But that loses that loses the church's control and its hierarchy and its patriarchy and its manipulation. And Again, John Bevere's book, and, and, and specifically, again, this chapter just emphasizes the importance of that hierarchy, and it completely gives the reader any doubt that they could go to ask for help when abuse or any injustice or, or just things that are wrong are taking place within the component of the church. So it's very arrogant for him to, to start off with that. So based on your chapter, who is this book? This is for high level leadership and ministers exclusively. For them to read or for them to, to make other people? No, for them to read and apply exclusively on their own. Like it's for self-application for them alone based on this chapter. All right. So looking at this book from the perspective, everything is permissible. I can't stop John Bevere from writing a book. I don't want to. He can do whatever he wants, but not everything is beneficial. So on a scale from one to 10, 10, everything is beneficial. This is beneficial for everyone. Five, neutral, permissible. It's there. It's not doing anything. Down to one, harmful for everyone. Not beneficial at all. Where would you put this? <sighs> for um, For everyone? Because we, yeah. So if it's for everyone and we're talking about church leadership, I was going to say, I was going to say one harmful for everyone. But the thing is, again, just isolating this chapter, it can benefit, it can benefit church leadership exclusively, not their staff, their leaders, like high level leaders based on this chapter. So, um, but I think in, in, when you step back, it's going to be more harmful than anything because you'll have the reader, even if they're a leader, exclude themselves of, oh, well, I'm not this way. And, and, and so I, I, yeah. So yeah, I guess my conclusion is it's harmful for everyone. It's number one. So 10 out of 10 would not recommend beta state and, so John Bevere, he took it upon himself to decide this issue was the bait of Satan. This, this was the thing burning in Jesus's heart that he forgot to mention clearly, but you know, this is what mattered. <laughs> and he got to choose it. If you got to choose one issue as the bait of Satan and you were given the same platform as John Bevere, so you, everyone had to read mm-hmm. your book and you got to go on the world tour and make every church confront this issue. What would that issue be? That would be narcissism, which the church translates as self-importance and arrogance. But you're not, I would not use self-importance and arrogance. I would use narcissism. I would use a psychological term. That, that would change things. That would change things. 
All right. So what is something, what is something that you would recommend? Give us a palate cleanser. Don't read, don't read the beta Satan, do anything else. So I started reading a book, haven't finished, but I started reading a book called um, Boundaries, When to Say Yes and How to Say No to Take Control of Your Life. And sorry, I forgot to write down the, um, the authors here. It is by Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. John Townsend. And the reason why is because I felt so out of control for most of the 23 years I've been in ministry. Or I was in ministry. I haven't finished reading the book. But really, the first like four chapters are pretty amazing. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> so, you know, so boundaries, definitely the first four chapters. <laughs> well, thank you for being part of the bad book club. <laughs> um, always a pleasure. I'm sorry for making you read any job of here. No, it just makes me, it makes me like once I, I kind of like, okay, let me sit down and, and get in a good headspace. It just, it helped me kind of, I'm a lot more proud of myself because my critical thinking skills have come up. Still have a ways to go. Cause I mean, you brought some amazing points as well. I was like, shit, how did I miss that? But yeah, like it's great. I love it. So yeah, it, it, it confirms that I'm on the right path which is away from this fucking nonsense. Sorry, you're going to have to bleep all my... Sorry, I'm sorry. It's such a good word to say. It's saying it in there. What are you talking about? I'm not offended. <laughs> and in closing... Even though David was rejected by the one who should have fathered him, he remained loyal even after Saul's death. It is easy to be loyal to a leader or father who loves you, but what about the one who is out to destroy you? Will you be a man or woman after the heart of God, or will you seek to avenge yourself? So that is chapter four. Did you catch what was wrong with the big picture of this chapter? What was missing from my father, my father? Let's get into the stats and all will be revealed. This chapter is just over 11 pages long. The word offended is used six times. The word offense is used three times. And again, the words offend and offensive are nowhere to be found. And we still get no definitions for offended or offense. But some words I would replace offended with in this chapter are disappointed, disillusioned, confused, hurt. All legitimate feelings that deserve to be named and not lumped under the fake sin of being offended. But another word that I would use in this chapter that might make it seem like I'm finally on the same page as John Bevere is vengeful. JB talks about how David acted after Saul's death. He called for all of Israel to weep over Saul. This is not the heart of an offended man. An offended man would have said he got what he deserved. And based on the story of David and Saul and JB's usage of it, I would replace those uses of offended with vengeful, especially since a new word slash concept that gets introduced, again with no definition, is avenge. John uses it four times in reference to what David would not do to Saul, but he pulls that word in from nowhere. None of the verses he uses in the chapter use the word. He ends the chapter by asking whether we will be a man or woman after the heart of God, assumedly like David, or will we seek to avenge ourselves unlike David. But in my original notes, I wrote that it was a false dichotomy, because sometimes the Bible does have people avenging themselves. But on second thought, it's not just a false dichotomy, it's a dishonest one. John Bevere has set up a comparison that isn't even in the story. 
To avenge is to inflict harm in return for an injury or wrong done to oneself or another. Avenging carries an implication of justice. It's about restoring balance. It's why the Marvel superheroes are the Avengers and not the Revengers. That will be a different kind of crew that will play by different rules. In revenge, anything goes. So David couldn't avenge himself by killing Saul because to kill Saul would have literally been overkill. It would have been revenge. Because in all the situations the Bible tells us about, Saul is not an immediate threat to him. That whole idea was the crux of both the Rittenhouse trial and the McMichael Bryan trial. This idea of when something is self-defense and when is it just murder. If David had taken it upon himself to kill Saul when there was another option, it would have been murder. And every time we see David choosing not to kill Saul, there is another option. Even when Saul threw that spear at him, David didn't kill him because he didn't have to. The other option was to run and David took it. He ran. And so I think David not killing Saul has been painted as this great feat of David's, but is it? Like maybe not killing Saul was literally the least David could do. But John Bevere is such a dishonest storyteller. The man is a menace not to be trusted. He talks about the time David and one of his men sneak into Saul's camp. And Saul and his entire army are asleep because God has cast a spell on them. So he's not an immediate threat to David at all. But one of David's boys is hyped. He's like, please let me kill him. And then John adds all these justifications that the guy has for killing Saul. He says, Abishai had very good reasons why he thought David should allow him to kill Saul. First, Saul had murdered 85 innocent priests and their families in cold blood. And he says that as if Abishai says that to David in the moment, but he doesn't. We have no idea what Abishai's motives and reasons are. We have no idea if Abishai even knows or cares about the 85 innocent priests. We don't even know what that story is or where to find it because JB opts to put no scripture references there. It's a Bevere word scam. So that's half the reason that whole be after the heart of God or avenge yourself comparison is a dishonest dichotomy. And the other reason is that harm done to an abuser to stop abuse is not vengeful. If someone in leadership is doing harmful things and telling the truth about them harms them in the sense that it costs them their job, their position, their access to certain things or people, that's just life. Them's the breaks. So the idea that people telling the truth are doing harm is dangerous. It's another way of providing cover for abusers. This chapter has eight scripture references, including another huge chunk, he says, to see 1 Samuel 16 through 31, which, let's be honest, who has time for that? If you're going to read all that, just read that. Why would you need this stupid-ass book on top of it? But anyway, the verse he opens up with starts with, My Father. And here's where we get into what's wrong with this picture. The title of this chapter is My Father, My Father. And guess what does not appear in this chapter? A father. Technically, yes, Saul is a father, but he's not David's father. John Bevere says this chapter is about the pain of experiencing rejection and malice from a father. He names the chapter, my father, my father, and then he immediately undercuts the importance of fathers by equating them with leaders. Any old leader, any old man leader, he says. To examine an example of a father who betrayed, let's look at the relationship between King Saul and David. And Jigga, what? Why? Houseway? That is not what this story is. David has an actual father who he experienced actual rejection from, and John Bevere completely erases him to try and shoehorn this super abusive theology in. He says, When we repeat something with the intention of separating or damaging relationships or reputations, even though it is true, it is still 
an affront to God. And that is some dangerous bullshit. If I am telling the truth about a bad leader to separate them from the person or the people they are harming, that is not an affront to God. It's just not. Not a good God. And it is dishonest and unfair to pretend that people can only have one intention or that everything that happens was the intention. When someone reports an abuser, relationships and reputations are probably going to be damaged. But being aware of that does not make it an intention. When a doctor gives a vaccine shot and the doctor knows that pricking the skin with a needle is going to cause pain, is causing pain the intention? Sometimes needful things have painful side effects. If telling the truth about an abuser causes them pain, it was the truth that did that, not the teller. And the story of Saul and David is just not a good example for this because the only one David could go to about Saul was God. Abishai wanted to kill Saul on David's behalf, so it's not like David wasn't out there talking about Saul, but there's no one else who could correct Saul. And unfortunately, a lot of churches are set up like this or would like to be, where only God himself can say something or deal with the lead pastor, but it shouldn't be that way. No pastor is king. But in trying so hard to make fetch happen and make this bad, bad theology make sense, JB actually accidentally highlights a really good example of how to deal with bad leadership. Leave. Go on the run. Assemble a group and keep company with people who support you. Become an army. Do your own thing and wait for the bad leadership to die out and be no more. Institute a new kingdom and a new way of doing things. And hopefully do better than David and don't just become a new version of the old kings. So that's chapter four. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Bad Book Club. I certainly hope you had a better time listening to this episode than I did reading that chapter. This book is a theological crime, and if I could take vengeance on it, I probably would. Please remember that this podcast was originally going to be a Patreon exclusive, and even though it's not, it's free to everyone. You are still free to support this podcast, support me monetarily via Patreon, Cash App, Venmo, or buy me a coffee. And please also show love to my guests. Hit the show notes for info on where and how to find, follow, and support them and to check out the links to things much better than the bait of Satan. And feel free to hit me via email, my DMs, or the comment section on Instagram if you have any thoughts, comments, or questions. And that's it for now. I am Janice Legata, and this has been an episode of Bad Words, but here are some good ones. In the second season of Ted Lasso, one of the main characters is offered a new job and is grappling with whether or not to take it, and if so, how to tell the current boss and another character offers this gem on leadership. A good mentor hopes you will move on. A great mentor knows you will.